I'm Chris Costello, and welcome to On Cue. I look forward to sharing with you topics and guests which may be out of the ordinary and some very extraordinary people who are making a noticeable imprint in today's world. This is coming through here, and I was here. You stayed at night and never took your eyes off the radio. I was listening to the radio from the time I got up until the time I went to bed at night. Long before computers and today's world of high-tech streaming, there was an era called the Golden Age of Radio. Now, you may think it's passe with absolutely no relevancy in today's world of technology. But it was, in fact, one of the most important inventions of the last century. It brought people together and a new way for people to communicate. Radio actually changed the world, and on many levels. This new medium of voices over the airwaves became a companion to the average household, sharing news, music, even drama and comedy serials specifically written for radio. Between 1923 to 1930, 60% of American households had purchased what were called consoles for their homes. It was around these wooden cabinets that housed the radio where families gathered for nighttime entertainment. The Lone Ranger, Fibber Mickey and Molly, even Orson Welles' infamous broadcast of War of the Worlds, which transmitted fear into the listening audience, thinking that Martians were invading planet Earth, Radio was grabbing the hearts and the minds of millions. But radio was also used by government, both in the U.S. and around the world. It became a tool to circulate positive and negative information. Does the name Tokyo Rose sound familiar? She was convicted of treason during World War II for her propaganda broadcast to U.S. troops in the Pacific. With me on OnQ is a man I know as a friend, but also who shares a deep knowledge and passion for radio. He's an actor, a filmmaker, and is currently working on a feature-length documentary film called Hearing Voices, Modulating a Revolution. The film will bring together media experts and broadcasting veterans to help unravel questions lurking in the air. It's the true story of radio, forgotten and never before told on film. And here to share his knowledge of the airwaves is Michael James Casey. Michael, welcome to On Cue. Well, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Michael, you're a native of Shamokin, Pennsylvania. I love saying the name Shamokin. Yes. And you spent some time in Los Angeles as an actor with credits including Beverly Hills 9210, HBO film with Michael Keaton, one of my favorites, Live from Baghdad. You then moved into filmmaking by writing, producing, directing an independent feature, Daybreak, followed by a documentary called The Poet Laureate of Radio, an interview with Norman Corwin. I'm just curious, how did a Shimokan boy find his passion for radio? Well, when I was growing up, I mean, the radio in the kitchen was always on. And as soon as I uh, was old enough, I got one from my bedroom and I, I listened Anytime I was home, I loved the radio. And in the evenings, they, we had the CBS Radio Mystery Theater was on every night. And that was network radio's last attempt at radio drama on the air. Well, I, I loved it. So, um, you know, I asked my mother and, about it. And she mentioned shows that she used to listen to as a kid, like uh, The Shadow, Lights Out, and Suspense, uh, Abbott and Costello, Jack Benny, things like that. And, you know, there were records that you go out and, and get at that time. And that's how I discovered all those old radio shows. And it was just magic to me. And then years later, I even got to meet some of those performers at some old-time radio conventions uh, in Los Angeles. They were perfect strangers that entered into the home for the first time. I mean, when you look at from 1930 into the 40s, radio became part of every American household. 
So would you say that that time period became known as the golden age of radio because of it bringing news and entertainment into the homes for the very first time? Oh, absolutely. It was incredibly transformative and powerful. Uh, I interviewed Norman Corwin, who was a writer-director for CBS, and he called it the shortest golden age in history because it only lasted about 10 or 15 years. It was a very short time, but it, it was central to every American's daily life. When you think about it, there was no television. There was no Internet. Uh, we had daily newspapers. But radio brought in, you know, the news of the, the war, the nation, the, the world. It offered escapism, right? We had soap operas uh, for the housewives during the day, uh, kids shows after school, and wide variety of uh, like music, comedy, and drama in the evening. And radio really was the centerpiece of the living room. And it's interesting because government recognized the importance of, of the power of radio because, you know, when they put into the law rules – that essentially broadcasters could make as much money as they wanted in exchange for serving the public interest. That was the deal. It was a bargain, and, you know, it really worked well. It was really bringing the outside world into everybody's home. I mean, for the first time, as you said, like, instead of reading about the news in a newspaper, they were able to turn on this radio and have these voices, strangers, enter into their home. And, of course, those voices became very familiar and became, you know, friends of the family, so to say. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. Yes. Wasn't it the Hindenburg disaster that was aired over the radio? Was it the first time where people were actually witnessing something occurring which was catastrophic? And it was right there in their homes. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, actually, Hindenburg was recorded live. It was not aired until the next day, believe it or okay. not. Um, it was a test that was being done by a reporter named Herd Morrison, and he captured it on disc and uh, tried to take it to NBC to go ahead and play. And they, they had a prohibition against playing discs. It, everything had to be live. And they actually made an exception for that the next day because they then aired the actual eyewitness report of the Hindenburg, and they did that several times during the day. Uh, it, it was recorded live, but it actually aired uh, on NBC the, the very next day. But that was a great event that, that you mentioned because that really drew people into radio in a very emotional way. You could see it in your mind when Herb Morrison is describing what's happening. You could feel the anxiety of that event, all without pictures, all without images. Exactly. Well, I can, I can remember seeing it. It may have been in a preview of your documentary where just the man's voice alone detailing what was occurring with the Hindenburg. And you sit there and I got chills. I felt as if I was reliving something that went back so many decades ago. But yeah. as we move, though, from radio, we're, now we're moving into motion pictures or motion pictures was actually around before the radio. Am I correct? Right. That's correct. Yes. Okay, so with motion pictures, was early radio seen as a major entertainment venue? Did it take away from the motion pictures, or were they compatible? Well, when it first started, radio, I mean, it was still a curiosity in the 1920s, because its role was not yet defined. It was kind of still finding its way. So when the Great Depression arrived, late 1929, lasting through the 1930s, it, it gave radio its purpose and it's standing as a major source of entertainment. Movies were, were still the main attraction. Sound was added at that point in the 1930s, and you could go to movies relatively cheaply. But the thing about radio was 
once you bought it, once you had a radio, the content was free all day long. And during the 1930s, this was when radio really became, as I said earlier, that centerpiece of the family uh, living room and such, and our lives. And radio also brought many performers from like vaudeville, big names that people could not afford to see in person. They came into their homes on radio for free, whether it was uh, Eddie Cantor or Jack Benny, Burns and Allen, that sort of thing. And so there was competition. Uh, there was a prohibition, actually, from the movie studios. They did not want their uh, movie stars to appear on radio. And then in the mid-30s, they kind of changed that model a little bit with the Lux Radio Theater, and they started to dramatize in an hour a uh, two-hour movie, and it was kind of used as a publicity purpose. So you could now hear a preview or a version of the film on radio. So they then become very, very compatible. When they found how promotion could work in their favor. Right. There were a lot of stars that also got their, their start on radio. I mean, would you say even Frank Sinatra, who was becoming a name through the big bands, but then all of a sudden mm-hmm. people could have that voice, that wonderful voice, you know, singing to them right there in their living room. I think what I love yes. about that era, though, Mike, is that it brought families together. You know, they sat around to listen to the shows, to listen to the music, to... Uh, partake in the news. Uh, it was it was sort of real time coming into, you know, their home. Um, but now, as we moved from the forties into the fifties, there's yet a new medium being introduced, which was television. So yeah, many from right. radio made the crossover into this medium, including serials that were once broadcast on radio, such as The Lone Ranger, Adventures of Superman. But was radio losing its audience with television coming into homes? Well. The short answer is yes. Uh, television had been looming on the horizon since the 1930s, and it would have arrived earlier except for World War II, and that kept it at bay as all the resources were put into the war. So in the late 1940s, the networks who ran the radio, the CBS, NBC, they were fully committed to television. And by the mid-1950s, television saw the same kind of explosion in popularity that radio had in the 1920s. Uh, You know, the sets were more affordable. The content was getting better. It was finding its way. And, you know, radio was thought to be dead, but it adapted and thrived. Uh, You had mentioned the radio shows moving to television, the Dragnet and Gunsmoke and and such. What that did, though, is it opened up airtime on radio stations that had to be filled. And it turned out the answer was that it was done locally by having an employee spin records. And it was the, the dawn of the disc jockey and, and the arrival of rock and roll music that gave radio this new popularity, particularly with young people. And so radio reinvented itself. And now you got the news, the time, and the weather, your favorite songs. And it was very local. And that's kind of the radio a lot of us remember fondly, the local DJ on our local station. You know, listening to the radio shows, and these, to me, are sort of the forgotten heroes, the behind-the-scenes people, the sound effects people that created all the sound effects for all of these serials. Mm-hmm. You know, the horses, you know, the hooves. You can hear them clopping, the doorbell ringing. So these people really are behind-the-scenes people, kind of forgotten, and yet they were such an integral part of the radio broadcasting of these serials. And I speak of, like, The Lone Ranger, The Adventures of Superman, and so many others. One of my favorites being Fanny Bryce, Baby Snooks. 
Well, it's amazing. They, there was a combination of recorded sound effects. You know, if they had, say, a music bed for a locomotive or something like that, they had a, a, a record that they played. They had a couple of turntables. And then they had live effects. They had doors. And, but they had doors that were maybe half the size of a regular door in our house. But they had the same kind of sound. So there were doors. There were steps. There were gravel pits where they would walk on the uh, gravel uh, for those sound effects. They, of course, had guns that fired blanks and did all that sort of thing. It was really uh, orchestrated. You know, it was like a dance with the music and the sound effects and the actors, and they all kind of worked that magic together. What happened, though, to these people that did the sound effects? I mean, they, they weren't actors on the show, were they? They were just people no. hired in to do sound effects. So where did they go when radio was sort of, you know, inching its way out and television was coming in? Well, some could find work in television just doing, you know, it wouldn't be live effects, but they would be doing recorded effects that, that are added to, uh, to say, the television version of Gunsmoke, whether it's the, the feet on the gravel, you know, the boots on the gravel or the horses or uh, the gunshots. I mean, they but certainly weren't as many jobs. And most of those people um, were out of work. Because remember, you know, we're talking about a lot of the evening shows and the Lone Ranger and Gunsmoke, but there were soap operas that were on early in the day. And there were, they required sound effects as well, too. Um, so there was a, it was quite a, um, a major industry in that when it did shift to television, people did lose their jobs. It wasn't just radio actors who weren't, you know, photogenic. As you mentioned, the people behind the scenes. Yeah, I always have this special affinity for the people behind the scenes because they're always the, the unsung heroes. Okay, now we're going into 1954. A portable known as the transistor radio was developed. Mm. And during the 60s and 70s, billions of these handheld devices were being produced. I had one. And I remember as a teenager, the feeling of being able to take that transistor radio with me outside of the home listen to my favorite music station wherever I was, it was a feeling of independence, my rite of passage, the transistor radio. It really was a big boom back then, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, that was probably the game changer. I mean, we do talk about television, you know, changing radio and, and moving to rock and roll music, but the transistor, before that radio had these big tubes. And exactly. it wasn't very portable at, at all. And with the transistor you could actually have a radio. Like you said, you could just take it with you. You go to the beach, you go hang out, you could take that radio. And what it became was you were taking your music with you because at the same time, the DJs are coming in and radio is kind of diversifying. So some of the stations are still playing Perry Como and Doris Day. And so mom and dad are still listening to that or big band music. And then these other stations are playing the new music, the rock and roll music. And so now the kids have their own music. And it's interesting because it's like the birth of this generational listening experience. I was part of that generation, Mike. And I can remember, as if it were yesterday, me, my transistor radio, my friends from high school were out at the beach uh, and were sitting on our blankets and we each have our transistor radios. And it was the first time I heard uh, one of the animal songs and also right. Rolling Stones. So that was my era, but I always loved the transistor radio. It's a shame I still don't have it because I always keep everything, but I never found the transistor radio. Let's move into the 90s. Okay, we have today's world of technology where we can now stream our films, download the music. Golden age of radio is gone, yet radio still has an audience. 
How has it grown since its early days? And is it a good guess to say that radio was the springboard for today's world of broadcasting? Well, you could certainly make that argument. Radio was the granddaddy of them all in terms of mass communication. You think about it now, we have uh, Pandora to stream music or Netflix to stream movies, TV content. We've got podcasts of all kinds, right? And it's all there on demand. And ironically, the golden age of radio shows are still being broadcast. If you go to Sirius XM Radio, Satellite Radio, they have their own channel. Uh, so that's quite amazing. But it all started with radio, you know, and it's it was not just the technical aspect of transmitting voice and sound, but the, the, the actual structure of using advertising to support the production of content. You know, that struggle to balance the desire to make money effectively and, and serve the public interest. So that, that also goes all the way back to radio, and it's something that we're still seeing today, even as we move into the Internet. And radio has changed. It has split up and gotten into smaller and smaller targeted audiences. And that's a little bit different. It's funny. We talk about, as you mentioned earlier, everyone sitting around the radio, everyone listening to the same programs or news or music. And then the transistor comes, and now, of course, mom and dad have their stations, and the kids have their stations. And now what we've seen is the stations, in order to make money, have really fragmented the audience. Very, very, they're like slivers. So if you like music from the 70s and 80s, there's a station for you. You like music from the 80s and 90s, ah, there's a different station for you. Even though there's songs that overlap, you know, they really have carved out niches that can be that specific. So in that sense, radio has really changed, but it still draws listeners, and it's still something I listen to every day. You know what I love about radio, too, Mike, and maybe you'll, you'll agree with me on this one, is it opens up the imagination. And I know that I love books on tape. Yeah. It's where you can envision what may be going on. The story becomes so firmly embedded in your mind, but you create your own pictures. So I think the imagination, it's, that's what radio. I do listen to a lot of radio shows. In fact, what's it called on Cirrus? It's uh, Radio Classics, I think. Radio Classics, exactly. And I have listened to it. And I love being in my car, paying attention, of course, driving. But I love the fact that my imagination takes over Maybe a lot of young people think, well, no, 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 you know, we created it through books on tape and we've created it here and there. But it all has a central point going back many decades to the airwaves. I mean, we could thank Marconi for that, correct? Right, exactly. Marconi and other pioneers that perfected this means of transmitting. It's interesting. When you think about radio or, or podcasts or books on tape, you know, that, that audio that is active, it, whereas television mm -hmm. is passive, you know, mm -hmm. it's all presented to you, but radio is active. You have to use your imagination. And that's one of the main differences between a, a radio drama and a, a TV show. That's very interesting, active and passive, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Mike, you're currently in the process of doing a documentary called Hearing Voices, Modulating a Revolution. Mm -hmm. well, I love the title, but a little bit of a description as to what this film is going to be about. Well, it's a feature-length documentary film, and we're currently still in production, and it uses the story of radio, uh, the untold story of radio, and the 20th century to kind of look at the struggle for diverse voices of our diverse nation 
to gain access to the airwaves. So it's about voices that are heard, voices that are not heard, and why and how this changed over the decades all the way to today. And that's why it's called Hearing Voices. And, and the subtitle, uh, Modulating Revolutions, radio was a revolution. And it was modulated or adjusted to different needs, one of them being the advertiser's needs. And there are political needs. There are all kinds of social needs that modulated this revolution. And that's where that title comes from. It's uh, basically looking at the fact that from 1927 on, broadcasters were given license to use the publicly owned airwaves free of charge in exchange for serving the public interest. And then over the years, the rules kind of allowed for unlimited ownership of radio stations nationally, kind of cross-ownership of television stations. This is media consolidation we've seen over the last 20 years. And as a result, local minority ownership has declined. And the film explores essentially what has the effect been on our society. Well, I know the film covers a broad area. Those contributors to radio are probably no longer with us, but who are some of the personalities uh, featured? Well, when I first began this, and it was just at the very beginning, it was just going to be focusing on the, the golden age of radio, kind of this love letter to radio. And then it got a little more serious and in-depth. So my earliest uh, interviews were like with Art Linkletter. Art Linkletter created House Party and People Are Funny and uh, was famous for his interviews with uh, the kids. You know, kids are funny. And we also spoke with uh, Norman Corwin, a writer-director for CBS. Certainly in the 1940s, all the prestige shows, he was the one who directed those. Dick Van Patten, one of my favorites. Uh, you know, I remember him on television, of course, but he was a child actor in radio. He did Duffy's Tavern. He did Let's Pretend. Um, uh, my favorite part of that interview is him recalling the night of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast. He was a little boy in New York City, and he described to us the people running out in the streets you know, in a panic. And uh, so those are some of the people that, you know, that we interviewed that aren't with us anymore. But uh, Norman Lloyd, who worked with the Mercury Theater, and Marsha Hunt was an MGM star. She, they're both still with us. And recently we, we added uh, an interview with Larry King and Wink Martindale. And they gave us, you know, their recollections on radio from the 50s to today. And so we still have many more interviews to go. And we're looking at... Uh, you know, not historians as well as broadcasters, but when I started, I really did focus on those people who actually lived it and did that job. How long have you been working? It's about 10 years, about 10 years on this. And when do you expect it to be released? Well, it's all a question of funding. When the funding comes in, we apply for grants, whether it's the NEH or, or different organizations. Funding is it's hard, it's competitive, and uh, we can basically have it ready in a well, less than a year, a little bit less than a year, 41 weeks. I'm going to be one of the first people to, to see it because you did show me some clips, and I, I think it's absolutely, it's mind-blowing. It's wonderful. It blows the lid right off of any misconceptions of radio. And for anyone under the age of 40 who may believe radio is passe, you got to think again, because radio is being used with current technologies such as with cell phones, uh, GPSs, satellite radio, broadcast television, even microwave ovens. Michael, your closing mm -hmm. thoughts. Do you ever see radio taking a final bow or its last breath, or will it continue to constantly reinvent itself in the years to come? That's a great question. You know, it's fascinating. Radio is a technology that is all around us, and it, its legacies, uh, radar and sonar, were derived from radio. Neil Armstrong spoke to us from the surface of the moon. He did it via a radio wave. Um, but radio is at a crossroads. 
will it survive? You know, if it doesn't attract regular young listeners, I don't see how it will survive. Certainly not in the form we know it. You know, I think radio would have to give young people a reason to tune in. That's more than just playing uh, music with DJs that are pre-recorded voices that are dropped in by computer, which is how a lot of stations do it now. I, I think radio works best when it engages us directly, when it's live, when uh, it, radio needs to make itself a destination for community. And I, I think the corporations that own all these stations now, they program them using very calculated formats. And I personally hope for a return of local ownership that reflects community, responding to community's needs, that sort of thing. And I think that will save radio. But it's interesting. People have said radio is going to die many times over, and it does find a way to reinvent itself. So it'll be interesting to see what the future holds. Let me just say one other thing. One thing that always struck me about radio is that when you think about a radio wave, a radio wave itself has no information, has no information. What we hear is what has been superimposed onto that radio wave. So it's not the technology, it's what we choose to do with it. That always fascinated me. It's what we put on that radio wave that matters. And what we put on that radio wave, that will tell the story of whether radio survives or not. I think anybody listening to the podcast should check out Cirrus Radio, check out the station that has all of the radio shows. Uh, I know I've listened to it many times, and it's fun, and it just opens up in a whole new door. But as long as there are people, Michael, like you, in the world, preserving this wonderful medium of radio, it's never going to die. And there's organizations out there. Spurdvac and some of the others that right, uh, right. truly keep the interest going and the historical value of radio. Michael, I love having you on the show, and I want to have you back as soon as your documentary is ready to be released. You're a fountain of knowledge. Uh, we are going to direct people to our Facebook page where they can click the links to your website. They can listen to a clip from the documentary. And could you give us, just for those listening that may want to take it down now, uh, where they can go to listen? Certainly. Well, the website is called hearingvoicesthemovie.com. Beautiful. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, and we're going to have you back. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Q. I invite you to visit our Facebook page, On Q Chris Costello, for more information and for upcoming guests. Remember... Each of us has a voice and a story. So until next time, share a smile, laugh often, be kind to each other, and let's help make this an even better world. <laughs>